Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, it's great to be on. And just for the record, I had a pocket constitution years ago before it was cool. <laughs> so did I. It's actually still in my backpack. And it has been since college. But you've got... Which for those of you in the UK, it's university. So... Um, you might have a pocketbook version of the Constitution, but have you read it? Again Today? and again. Yeah. Ah. Oh, okay. Cool. I'm a big. I'm a big fan. Uh, we're we're nerds, right? So again, for foreign listeners, like, is it like, oh, we're, do Americans just all read the Constitution all the time? Xander and I are pretty <laughs> special. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Uh, today I'm joined not only by Xander, but also Royfield Brown, who's the host of a whole slate of podcasts, uh, including 10 American Presidents and Mid-Atlantic, uh, which, I, which I highly recommend. Uh, you can find him as well on the Agora Podcast Network. Uh, I'm particularly a big fan of Mid-Atlantic. I've learned a ton from it. And today what we're going to be talking about is party conventions. Now that both of them are over, what's the takeaway? What's it mean for the United States? Are they even relevant? And in the words of Royfield, which party knows how to party? (laughs) (laughs) So, guys, uh, being a Brit, I'm kind of somewhat fascinated by American political party conventions because, uh, for a start off, us Brits, we like to do them much more regularly than you. We do them once a year, but they're not as glitzy and as glamorous, and there's definitely no aging rock stars there. So, um, quite simply, uh, from a Brit to a couple of Yanks, what do co- party conventions basically say about modern American politics? Ooh, that's a good question. It is. I, um,. I don't know what they say necessarily about modern American politics. I certainly think they say something about sort of the political process here in America, which is, you know, campaigning becomes this big emotional uh, patriotism fest where both parties can try to show off to the rest of the country how much they love America. And obviously there are aspects to this year's RNC and DNC that are, I would say, unique. But I think there's certainly, you know, that aspect of overt patriotism that American politics tends to do, you know, pretty well. Here's my here's my take. Uh, The way I think of it is structural. So where did the conventions come from? And so it's sort of how have they morphed to enter the modern world? So conventions, if you guys listen to podcast episode seven, Delegate Math on Reconsider, uh, we talk a lot about about where they come from. So I'm not going to repeat too much. But in short, they used to be places where in smoke-filled rooms, party leaders from different states would get together and they'd actually just on their own pick who their party nominee was going to be, which seems kind of really foreign to us now. Um, And then over time, it morphed to be more and more of a democratic process of uh, nominating the president as well as – or sorry, nominating the party's candidate for president as well as electing the president. And – And so the conventions, to some extent, sort of lost their original purpose. Like, you know, you come in and and they do kind of count how the delegates vote, but it's it's ceremonial, right? We know we have known since 1952 every time going in who it's going to be. 
broker conventions are very rare. And when they're not brokered, they're really just a dog and pony show. The value I think that conventions have is sort of setting the party's message for that cycle. Um, and, you know, I've talked a lot on the blog and in the podcast and in Wedged about how, you know, the changing media landscape and introduction of like super polling and consultants has changed this a lot. It means that the message is changing actually every few weeks and every few months rather than just every four or 20 years because what's happening is we're trying to get uh, an emotional connection with a very emotional and, and kind of short attention span audience. Um, and I think the conventions are the sort of ultimate manifestation of that because it's one of the few times you actually have people tuning in specifically saying, I want to see what this presidential candidate stands for. And because it's about emotions more than it is about platform, uh, you see, you see that played up on overdrive and, you know, you give someone 30 minutes to get people really riled up, um, and they're going to do some crazy stuff. So, uh, that's where I think, that's why I think conventions kind of look the way they do in the United States right now. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction to make too, Eric, is that they, in their current incarnation, they have become more and more about marketing and emotional displays. Whereas back in the day when America was a little less democratic, a little bit more representative, they kind of served a different purpose. I think that's a really interesting distinction. And I suppose looking at British party uh, party conventions or uh, party conferences, as we call them in the UK, um, they're less on emotion. At least the Labour Party and I think the, the Liberal Democrats are less on emotion, more actually on policy and specifically on the floor. Uh, policy can be can be driven through uh, that whole kind of mechanism of of the convention of the conference so I'm, I'm getting my two sides of the Atlantic you know the labels which, which you call them kind of mixed up here they're definitely called party political conferences in the UK as opposed to conventions whereas the Tory party the Conservative Party has been much more about uh, emotion the way that you describe it but also about reflecting um, its idea of uh, nationalism and, uh, and this can be somewhat kind of overt, so you can get in the Tory party conference people waving Union Jacks. And one of the things that's interesting for me looking at this round of party political conventions in, in the US was that the Democrats seem to, for the first time in, in the, that I can remember, been able to say we are also Americans as well. So you got them shouting USA, USA, which I always thought was very much a right of center political thing in, in the US, you know, and those very overt kind of uh, uh, displays of kind of nationalism, you know. So I thought that that was very interesting that it seems to me that because uh, Trump is, is seen in some ways to maybe be pushing the uh, Republican Party maybe to the right, depending on what mood you're in, if you're talking about his stance on immigration or maybe even to to the left, if you look at the fact that um, he is definitely interested in, if you can say that he has any kind of thought out platform, but he's definitely, you know, interested in um, anti-globalisation, that the Democrats seem to be able to occupy this kind of middle ground, at least emotionally and in terms of figuratively with their... Uh, displays of uh, Americana. Yeah, it's an interesting observation that, you know, Trump, the phenomenon of Trump could potentially be introducing these generally considered to be Republican attributes into the Democratic Party's process and getting pulled that way. And then Sanders, you could say, pulled the Democratic Party to the left. So maybe the Democratic Party is just getting stretched in both directions right now. Who knows? But it's certainly a point that, you know, political commentators have been making, and certainly a lot of Republicans in the U.S., which is, you know, we are seeing activity, or we saw activity at the DNC that has, at least in recent decades, been more frequently associated with, you know, Republican patriotic gravitas. Yeah, if I had to guess, so again, I'm a I'm like a big structural guy, you know, you've heard Xander and I talk about realism a bunch, and I'll talk about 
you know, market economics a bunch. And I'll be like, well, what's the, you know, what's like the driving incentive here? Um, you know, if we are, if we're looking at the DNC, I think what's interesting for them is they sniff an opportunity here to, uh, well, my impression of their mood is both that they're sort of like giddy and also terrified. Uh, they're terrified because for the past year and a half, everyone, including the Republicans, has been saying, you know, Trump's a maniac and he's he's going to disappear at any point. And by the Republicans, I mean the establishment, um, you know, because obviously he's, he's got a lot of support. And so the scary part is like, why isn't he dead yet um, as a as a politician, not as a human? And so there's a little terror there. And, um, you know, I'm maybe someone's asking why he's not dead as a human yet. But he's actually his doctor said he's he's very healthy. He's the most he's the healthiest president that's ever candidate that's ever run for president, you know. Um, but anyway, but there's also a, so with this fear, there is opportunity, right? The Democrats know that mm. establishment style Republicans, particularly the kind of people that voted for Kasich, um, and the kind of people that were excited about Romney, uh, pro business Republicans, guys like that. Um, cause the, the, the tents are actually pretty large. If you look ideologically, um, you know, the Republicans are kind of getting more white male, uh, and that's a problem for them demographically. But ideologically, it's still a very big tent with a lot of very different ideas. I think the Democrats this year smell an opportunity. Um, and I think it, they think it's their best strategy to beat Trump and, and maybe also take back Congress and Senate by targeting and scooping up uh, those Republican, those pro-businessy type Republicans. Um, so I heard a lot of, uh, I heard, you know, obviously Hillary Clinton is is like fairly kind of centrist um, and she, you know, her ties to wall street mean that she's kind of at least uh, close with business people and has talked to them and understands them. Unlike Sanders who's kind of like, you know, uh, throw them all in jail or break up the banks and stuff like that. Um, So she's, I think she's hounding for those people. She just got Meg Whitman, famous Republican CEO ran for president. Um, And also I think to some extent you saw that reflected in the DNC convention her attack is, hey, we're the steady hand, we're centrist, uh, and we've got some stuff on the left over here to make sure that the Bernie people don't just totally blow up on us. Um, but I think they may be, and, and Sanders' point about feeling stretched, I think, is a real one. But I think to a large extent, some of the DNC was about messaging to Republicans who are thinking about defecting, like, hey, we're like you, and we're not so different. Um, and, and you're welcome. You know, come on over. So I think that may be part of why we're seeing some of that. I think it's interesting you, that you say that the Democrats, um, at least the optics, were that they're very centrist, considering uh, the two kind of marked things about the, the Democratic Convention was that, number one, uh, Bernie Sanders was very pleased with some of the platform resolutions that he said this is the most progressive uh, set of resolutions uh, that he can remember the the, uh, the DNC actually running through. And then also there was that first night, which it seemed like potentially the whole thing was going to descend into chaos because of the Bernie or Bust thing. You know, the the fact that you had that left-wing element, the, the Bernieites, uh, the people that were definitely feeling the burn and were somewhat upset that there was no more burn to feel. That, uh, <laughs> they, they, it looks like they were trying to disrupt the, the whole thing. They can but, still go uh, to the burn but, ward. They'll get plenty of burn but, uh, <laughs> there. Sorry. But definitely by the by the end of that week, um, with speeches from from Obama, where he was absolutely reaching out to traditional Republicans, uh, and uh, and I think that mood definitely turned when you had Michelle Obama's speech, etc. That yes, you know, the optics definitely were that we are the centrist party, but also, again. Uh, I don't even think, for, I was going to say from a British perspective, uh, forget that, with somebody with eyes <laughs> perspective, looking at the two conventions, um, one of them was absolutely the party of white America, and the other is definitely the party of inclusive America. And that just cannot be denied if you look, looked at those, those, two, those two conventions. You know how how is it that such a thing could be so marked uh, and and go? Um, I'm not going to say it's been unreported, but sure, if I was the Republican Party, if I was Rance Priebus, I would be absolutely scared. 
Oh, he's because... terrified. He's freaking out. Yeah. By I mean, the way, I'd be scared Pyrvis... if I had that name too. Yeah. For those that don't know, Pyrvis <laughs> is the chairman of the RNC. So he kind of runs the party from an organizational perspective. Are the Republicans scared? I mean, they're they're losing it. They're livid. Uh, they're you know the establishment Republicans. They're livid right now. Uh, I've been reading a lot of stuff about where like there are like little leaks of establishment Republicans, particularly the party organizer types, uh, just kind of freaking out. Um, a couple of them have like maybe have like tweeted things that were maybe meant to be direct messages, saying like we're just going to get destroyed here and. They may be even thinking about trying to convince Trump to drop out and get someone else. I mean, it's been a, it's a it's a bad time for them. I would not want to be I would not want to be an establishment Republican right now. Um, and, you know, I remember after 2014 or maybe no 2012 because they won in 2014 and they were feeling good uh, in 2012. They said, look, OK, they were very clear. McConnell was clear. Pierce was clear that we need to become a bigger tent and we need to reach out to people that aren't uh, whites and men more. Um, and there were a lot of candidates this year that were, that were part, you know, on that message, um, you know, in the nomination process. And then they got Trump and it was like, Oh crap, you know, we're in trouble now. Yeah. And you know, we, we talk about this a little bit on, on uh, our reconsider episode on, on demagogues, which is, you know, you can, can you approach the phenomenon of certain types of leaders less from the perspective of what do they represent and more from the perspective of are they evidence, are they a symptom of some sort of greater thing going on? And I kind of want to turn this back on you a little bit, Roy Field, given everything that's gone on in the UK with Brexit. You know, mm. can Trump be, you know, representative, a symptom of maybe a larger trend that's going on in the West right now, which is just rejection of the establishment and you know you mentioned a moment ago how exclusive the rnc seemed compared to the dmc which really i thought they did a very effective job at portraying this message of unity but how does that relate to what just happened in in the uk and what is what does the american campaign right now look like to an outsider well i've just come back from lunch uh with a, a group of your uh compatriots and I, I start all conversations on Brexit like this up until that vote us Brits and the rest of the world could look at American politics and just say these guys are crazy look, look at them, we're so much superior to them, we are sober, we are sensible, we know how to do democracy, specifically within the UK we have the oldest uh, parliament in continuous running parliament in the world it's the mother of parliaments etc etc we do things in a considered way then we just blew ourselves up so trust me um, there is no smugness anymore if you don't if you if we'd had this conversation two months ago six weeks ago i'd have been incredibly smug i can't be smug anymore um so yes there is a trend and i think that donald trump we can blame a lot of things on him but um whether he is a demagogue or not or just a complete and utter political opportunist there's a reason why donald trump has found traction in Mm. this election cycle in the u.s and it comes some 40 odd years after uh relative uh wage inequality relative economic stagnation if you look at the economic boom that was america post the second world war that kind of stopped in the early to mid 70s um again if you look at the the, there's a reason why the united states and the united kingdom in the early 1980s both had uh relatively right-wing politicians both that broke with the political consensus that post-war consensus was broken both at the same time, uh, those Thatcher and Reagan, both of them saying something is wrong, but we're going to look backwards and forwards at the same time for solutions. So backwards in terms of uh, ideas of patriotism, but we're going to, uh, and, and, and law and order, but we are going to look forward in terms of um, a new economic, uh, economic model, i.e. kind of trickle down. So let's, 
get people who can create wealth to create the wealth and then the benefits of that will then trickle down to to uh, the lumpen mass so to speak now I don't think anyone would necessarily brand me as an out and out lefty but after 30 odd years of that we have widening wealth disparity and I don't think anybody can really doubt that some people might say well it's not the fault of Reaganomics or Thatcherite economics or uh, economic liberalism but all throughout the western world dependent doesn't doesn't really matter whether uh, whether governing parties are on the left or on the right we have um, people who are unhappy with the political status quo whether it's in uh, Britain whether it's in Spain whether it's in Greece and yes Spain and Greece and Italy might have had stronger economic shocks than the US and uh, the UK but all these elements of disaffection are still there and I put it all the way back to the early 1970s and 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 somewhat to the disillusionment actually of the of the 60s that if you look at it every decade if you take out maybe the uh, depression era but every decade there was some level of optimism you know things are going to get better uh, and parents the children of parents always did economically better that has come to a grinding halt and it's and and so so then you have people like trump who are saying things which the left can agree with in part the right can agree with in part and and he feels incredibly fresh because he doesn't come out with slick spin trite answers and people say he sounds like me he thinks like me we have we have trump in the united states we had farage in the united kingdom who was very 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 much trump light who led the brexit movement you know he was somebody who was a successful businessman um i don't think he's a, a millionaire uh, but a successful businessman very much populist very much right wing but had an appeal to people who traditionally left wing to blue collar workers who was always spotted in the pub with, with a pint of beer so he had the common touch and kind of said what he thought though he's much more articulate than donald trump don't get me wrong you know i'm not saying they're two peas in a pod but in terms of what they uh stand for they they, they stand for very kind of similar things in terms of rejecting globalization saying that the economic model for the working man is broken rejecting big banks and 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 a kind of corporatization uh, and saying that um, decisions need to be made closer uh, and small uh, decisions need to be made uh, closer to you the person so in britain that meant a rejection of of the eu and uh and and, and in this way trump's politics chime with uh, the last 40 years of Republican politics, which is to say that, you know, Washington is bad, 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 and we need we need smaller government, you know. So in, in those two, in, in those ways, these two kind of characters are kind of synonymous. Um, yeah, I think, I, think oh, I, was, I was going to say, Eric, I think Royfield makes a lot of good points about some yeah. larger trends that are going on. If we're going to refocus a little bit on some of the conventions, how do you how do you think these played into both how you know, the conventions were managed and how the reactions to them have played out afterwards. Well, for me, it was absolutely stark um, that the Republican convention was completely about fear, completely about fear. But then in terms of just the theatre of it, I didn't know who all these people were. And I was absolutely shocked how much the Trump family and the Trump corporation had seemed to have taken over the Republican Party. And and when you actually broke down what they were saying to endorse their father, it was pretty, pretty threadbare. I remember looking at what one of the uh, promotional videos said that Trump built a golf course. 
outside of New York. Maybe I'm just too dyed in the wool and I'm left of the political spectrum. But to say that you built a golf course isn't the same as saying that you helped pull people out of poverty or that you knocked on doors and you were a community activist and you've devoted 40 years to community service or even to, to service for war vets. And that, that for me was just so, so obvious. That's not to detract away from the fact that he's built, he builds big hotels and likes to put his name on them, etc, etc. But if you even listen to those anecdotes, people were saying things like, so he once passed me in the corridor and he remembered that he'd seen me before and said, hi, he's a, he's a great guy, you know. Now, I then transpose that to the um, to the Democratic Convention, and I didn't get an overwhelming sense of Hillary being an omnipotent presence in the way that you did with the Republican uh, Convention. It was it was it was lighter in tone. It was more celebratory. It was more fun. They even had better celebrities, much better celebrities. Who, who were the celebrities even at the, at the, at the RNC? So it was well, just... Oh, I just wanted to, I want to, I want to drop a fact thing in it. And I think that one of the, yeah, one of the, you know, why, why did you get so much, so many small names and so many Trump people at the convention? Actually, my understanding is it's not what he wanted because um, he's, he's, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, I think that Trump is actually pretty politically savvy. Um, he has his moments. I think he's like not as self-controlled as you know as as he needs to be. But from Which a strategic is perspective, part part of his charm, as, as you know, if you are if you're fed up with the political system, somebody comes along who can hold up a middle finger to it is going to hold a certain amount of um, you know charm for you and you will go along with them after they make mistake after mistake because you will turn around and you will say it's the political class is saying that they've made a mistake it's the same old people that have led us to where we are so you know good on you for making your mistakes yeah exactly so the the reason he ended up with so much of his family and small celebrities was that they tried to get bigger names and people just didn't want to go. Um, cause the people that tend to be, you know, part of it is that I think Trump is so dangerous to be associated with in, in many circles, um, except for specifically the thing that he's doing, uh, that nobody wanted to be there. And so, you know, they, they had actually invited a whole lot of other people and it ended up coming down literally to a lot of his family just cause they couldn't get anyone else. Um, the other thing that I that I got out of the GOP convention that was a little bit different uh, was that because you said you said, you know, you didn't resonate with anything he said about uh, or you didn't get the impression that he said anything that was um, that was about how much he loved Americans. And I think his messaging is a lot, you know, and you mentioned like community organizing and knocking on doors and caring for war vets. And I think there's a I mean, there's there are there obviously is because it's resonating with them. But I think that the message for him about caring for Americans is less from an emotional side. <clears throat> and I think one of the things Republicans resonate with is, you know, I don't actually I don't care if you do things that feel good. And, you know, I don't care if you say that you care. I want to see results. And I think his big thing is that, hey, unlike the political class, I've built tens of thousands of jobs and I haven't I don't know exactly how many jobs how many people he employs. So I don't know if that's a fact check issue, but like, but for him, it's like, Hey, I get results. And I think that's what like the golf course is about. And that was actually a, my impression is it was like a huge disaster before he took it over. And so that was why they brought up that example. Um, or at least that's the story. Again, I haven't fact checked it, but absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was, it was some kind of toxic waste dump or something or another. And the city of New York had struggled to, to do whatever with it for, for a certain amount of time. And he says, okay, we'll put a golf course there. So he, he, you know, he, he did do some good. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Yeah, so I want to refocus a little bit on the topic of the conventions. And something that's interesting to me, one of my pet issues, really, and Dan Carlin talks about this sometimes, and it sometimes gets some mainstream media attention, is really how different the skill set is to campaign effectively and to administrate or administer effectively, to govern effectively, right? And there's something, I think, perhaps a little bit more unique about the way that the American electoral process is set up that encourages one, two, sometimes even longer, two-year you know, campaigns really from when they get going on the onset, that encourages a certain type of skill set to be you know, promoted and brought to the front of American politics. But what we saw at the DNC that I think a lot of people have considered to be very effective, this you know, on-point message of unity and bringing in patriotism It's good, and there is great oratory. Bill Clinton did a good job. Michelle Obama did a great job in giving speeches. And I think what's easy to forget is that speeches and the art of oratory are focused specifically to cultivate certain types of emotions that get big groups of people to do certain things. And that it could be really a unique set of skills that could allow someone to govern effectively compared to giving good speeches. And it, to me, that's just easy to forget, right? And it's, it's too bad because I think we don't have a great way of vetting what the actual skill set would be to allow uh, or to check whether or not a prospective leader, a prospective politician can govern effectively once they get into office. But, but I thought that was one of the reasons why your campaign process was so long, that actually you could vet somebody by how they campaigned, how many times they're going to trip themselves up, by how many different constituencies of America they could actually take on board, of which the convention is a coronation, but then you need those ve- people from those various constituencies then to endorse you, whether it's through searing oratory or whether it's through prose, but then they endorse you and, and endorse you kind of clearly. Yeah, I think that's one of the dilemmas of democracy ultimately is that that's the intent right the intent is that you know and i'm sure it's sort of what was kind of originally going through everyone's head when they sat in philadelphia um not this time around i mean back in the 1700s (laughs) um and you know because they were thinking like oh it'll be good you know people people will be they're good at knowing their own self-interest and they're good at um you know kind of asking the right questions of a candidate and so certainly that was the intent of of i think of how campaigning was supposed to work but i think the well and also it was originally designed right that they wouldn't be campaigning until after the convention uh, because you wouldn't even know who it was and they wouldn't be doing it publicly they'd be doing it privately you know with with the party bosses uh, but anyway yeah i think that's a dilemma it's like you have that intent but there is this sense that you know and and like Car- carlin said and like xander said there's this sense that the stuff that you do to best cultivate people's emotions to get them excited to vote is not necessarily the same stuff, you know, it's not the same skill set um, that you need once you're done campaigning, you get into office. And, you know, I think, Zan- yeah, I, I think Xander brings up a great point. Just slightly to, to, to come back at what you just said there, that this is um, the way that kind of democracy is. Um, this is the way that American democracy works. Um, and I think you Americans, and I've got big love for America and your political system, and I think uh, m- my works kind of prove that. But the one thing that, that um, America does is to, to think that democracy is American democracy, and, and there are many other kind of, kind of parts mm. to it. Um, that's just a, a, a small point. Um, 
and specifically within the UK and how our political model works is that because your average citizen or sorry subject doesn't actually vote for <laughs> the person who is yeah you know we, we are subjects not citizens right yeah um, because we don't actually vote for the head of the executive the way that you guys do so you vote for the head of the executive and the head of the uh, head of state um, politicians earn their stripes by holding portfolio offices so it's I'm sure mm. it could happen, but it's highly unlikely for somebody who has never held ministerial office or at least shadow ministerial office. So that is in opposition. It's one of the key differences between our political system and yours is yeah. that when a party's in opposition, they still have people who hold the shadow portfolio so they're not executing the orders of you know the the minister of defense but they look over what that person actually does and kind of holds them to account so it's unlikely that in our political system that somebody can go from zero to hero you could have somebody who's never held any form of political office or any responsible office and then to become the head of the executive become the prime minister you know i'm sure it could happen but it would have to be such a wild set of circumstances for that actually to be the case yeah that's a great point and i was thinking in my mind i was like "Ooh, is that is this a new thing because you know obviously if you look at past candidates like um you know obviously like romney and obama and mccain and clinton and bush you know they've well Obama's a little bit less experienced, but, you know, they had all at least held office and some of them were two term governors and a bunch of other stuff. And um, but then if you look back at like Woodrow Wilson, for example, he had, you know, he was a professor. Yeah. Um, And and, you know, as much as what's interesting is he was obviously from the very from a very intellectual tack, but he was also he also had that outsider edge Mm. to him. Um, I think this may be. So, yeah, I think structurally you're certainly right. And, you know, why are we seeing the Republicans now? I mean, I think you you nailed it when you said that the Republicans spent a long time saying that D.C. is broken and D.C. is the problem. Not just the Democrats, but everyone there. And I think this, you know, I think this year Republicans said, OK, well, not going to vote for any of you guys. Right. Um, you know, we're going to vote for someone who's not part of this corrupt, terrible, totally broken system. Um you know, and I also liked one of the things you said earlier that there seems to be there's an outsider anti-establishment edge, um, you know, a little bit, like you said, in the UK and a lot in the US. And it's on the, you know, it's a little bit on the left as well. And Bernie mm-hmm. was obviously very experienced. Um, you know, he's been in Senate for a very long time, but he was also very much like the party is broken. The system is broken. You know, it's both DC and um, corporations and the economy. You know, it's all busted and we have to redo it all. And and that, I think, is one of the, you know, that sense. And it, and it could be entirely justified, right? Um, I don't want to tell someone whether it is or it isn't. But uh, if it's broken, obviously that's bad. And if it's not broken and people think it's broken, that's obviously bad, too, because it means there's this sort of breakdown in um, breakdown in trust of the, you know, the basic institutions that make up the country. And what does that mean? Because, like, uh, and maybe I'm going a little off topic here, but one of the things I'm thinking about after both of the conventions is that um, so much of them are based on fear and hate of the other party. Um, you know, the Democrats are a little less about you know, terrorism and such, but, you know, they're saying that basically if Donald Trump gets elected, the sky's going to fall. And the Republicans are saying if Hillary gets elected, the sky's going to fall. And so you're going to have, I think, more than, you know, I think and we kind of say this all the time in the United States. Um, it's a big thing for us. And, but I think people believe, and there's substantial evidence for this, uh, the unfavorability of both candidates is very, very, is like historically high. And one of the things I'm worried about is after the election, you're basically gonna have half the country that goes, Oh God, we're all doomed. And like the worst person in the history of America, a monster is in the presidency. Um, and you know, regardless of who you support, I think that's, a that is something that I fear is likely, that that sense from half the country that we're totally doomed is something that I think is like likely to happen come November and January. I, I think it's one of the interesting things for me 
being a student of American politics is how historically um, American the the broad span of American political thought has actually been from a European perspective very narrow. What has been as what is seen as being acceptable in American political discourse for the last hundred years uh, has not gone as far left as mm. as Europe and has not gone as far right, and that has been arguably a very good thing because you know you haven't had major brushes with communi- communism, but then you haven't had brushes yeah. with fasci- fascism. Well, you've had minor brushes, but you know so. And what is absolutely marked, though, now is that though you could arguably say that American political discourse is becoming broader because you can have somebody uh, like Bernie Sanders who can say, I am a democratic socialist. And I know lots of Americans just hear socialist, don't even really hear the difference. You know, if you're a democratic socialist, you're you're not a socialist socialist. Those are two two different things, you know, but there are are tougher branding uh, spectrum. Yeah, well, exactly. But if you can have somebody in America, you know, almost getting his party's nomination, saying I'm a democratic socialist, it tells you that the the breadth of American political discourse is becoming wider. And as it's becoming wider, though it's still narrower than it is, let's say, within the UK or within Europe, the amount of personal attacks have been amped up to a degree that I I don't think we see in the UK. It could be because I'm born and brought up within the culture that I can't see it when it does happen. But but I don't think it does. Yes, people on the right and the left of UK political discourse do say that the others are going to lead us all off the cliff. But there isn't the amount of personal mm. vitriol. I cannot think of one British politician who has the amount of personal vitriol thrown at them the way that Hillary Clinton has. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm right. just saying I can't think of one. You know, we don't have the same amount of uh, political invective and vitriol. We just don't. I'm not saying it's right. good. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's just interesting that we can have wider political opinions but it doesn't quite descend in the way that it has done. So people, so we have, at the moment, we have Jeremy Corbyn, who is the leader of the Labour Party, and there is massive rancour within the Labour Party, uh, and and many of the right-wing press are anti-Corbyn, but no one is saying he needs to be in prison. You know, no, you know, you wouldn't, at the Tory Party convention, people wouldn't be saying lock him up or throw him out the country. You know, and this for me is something which is very stark and in lots of ways, not the America that I've encountered, because the America that I've encountered is generally people being incredibly courteous, being very open to um, to to strangers, you know, to, to people, whereas it seems to be within this one sphere of American life of discourse um no, the gloves have come off, and it's like I don't know, it's like the eighteen nineties again with with the yellow press. You know, just anything kind of goes. I yeah, I mean, certainly my feeling is the same way, and I know that in some of the research I've done, one of the things I've definitely seen growing is a sense, you know, from polling, is a sense from Americans that we we have this. It's getting they don't like it, or we don't like it, um, and it's getting worse. And so, like you know, most of our American listeners will probably be saying like, yeah, this is you know, this is really scary. Um, and what's what I don't know is, is it the same people that are saying, you know, lock her up or, um, you know, I remember like Nancy Pelosi said that uh, if in 2014 the Republicans are reelected to Senate, it will be a risk to civilization as we know it. Um, and so, you know, and, mm-hmm. and but yes, the. So there is there is this like growing vitriol. I think Americans have a sense of it. We don't like it, and it could be it could be the same people that are spewing the vitriol that also hate the vitriol. Um, and how much do we? How much is it that we like feel trapped in this cycle that we can't get out of? Where we are, you know, just so genuinely afraid of one person. Because like if you know if uh, Hitler was running for the presidency after his you know after having been Hitler. Um, 
you know, I think a lot of people would be like, well, maybe like we should throw him in jail and we're actually really worried. And if 50% of the country was voting for him, it'd be like, ah, right. We'd be really scared. Um, and so, yeah. And that's where you're saying like, mm. it might be, it, you know, maybe it's justified that like, maybe both of these people are so terrible that the, like the feeling, the emotions are somewhat justified. Um, but we certainly, we've been growing in it for a while. We don't like it. And I think there's a, there's a perception problem. And this is of course a common human bias that when it's us and someone we know that's doing something, there's always a good explanation for it. And when it's someone else and someone we don't know, it's because Mm. they're a bad person. Um, so we may just be, we may be just caught in this endless cycle where we think we're good people. We think the other party are all monsters and evil. Um, and to your point, Royfield, I mean, like I've been, I've traveled a lot for work, and, you know, so I've been to the South and I've been to the Northwest and, the North, you know, like kind of all over the place. And like, you know, maybe you think that Democrats or Republicans are just these like kind of monsters who like love, you know, murdering babies or, you know, waging wars on women in their like war room mm-hmm. of women war. Um, and like you get to most people of whatever political party, and you're like, you're like really nice and like you care and you like, care about your community and your family and you care about the country and you seem like a great person how can we possibly disagree so much? And like, you know, how can you possibly be with this party that does such and such and says such and such? Um, and I think that, you know, like, can we heal this kind of partisan divide that we're seeing out of the conventions and, you know, everything leading up to it? Can we heal it by like talking to each other more? I don't know. I don't think we travel enough to be able to do that. And like, we don't get in contact enough to do that. So I don't know how to get out of it. That's what, you know, you know, and again, like I try to not tell people what to think, but I think the evidence is there that Americans are growing and feeling this way and they want it to end. And I think we don't know how to get out. Um, and I think that's kind of where we're stuck right now. Well, to be fair to um, Americans, as I think we all agreed at, at the start of this, these same trends are being noticed all throughout at least the Western world. You know that there is um, some kind of post. Uh, it, it's post post the Second World War. Now we're, no, none of us are really living in in that shadow uh, emotionally, uh, uh, kind of economically. We're kind of post post. You know the the Berlin Wall has come down, and political discourse has got more rancorous in the United Kingdom definitely since the 19 uh, definitely since the 1980s though I wouldn't again I'd say there isn't the same amount of personal vitriol but it's still heading in in, in you know in the direction of impolite discourse um, I can't speak for French politics I think that is more more rancorous but that's just a guess guess on my part so this isn't just uh, an American disease so to speak um, but you know, you look at somewhere like Canada, and there is nowhere near the amount of political vitriol in Canadian politics as there is in in, in US. You know, like like nowhere near. And I and I contrast that with um, the tone deafness of Donald Trump, who I in part actually agree with you that he isn't a total blowhard, and he's politically more savvy than we give him credit because he's been able to triangulate his position in the firmament of American politics in the last 18 months extremely well and I'm not just talking about you know him being good on Twitter you know he's been able to say well wait a minute if there's 16 people running in this nomination process um, I can be pretty outrageous and and have a distinct message and I can get a, a, a minority of the votes and win this thing so that was very good political acumen just to be able to do that. If it was in a race of three or four, as as normal, he wouldn't have won. You know, he wouldn't have won. But also, he could he he's tapped into um, a mood. But when it comes on to this view of uh, impolite language and rancor, that I think that is very much a symptom of somebody who believes that the the bounds of language and civility have actually kind of been lost and it doesn't really matter. For the, for the most part, most Americans actually agree on most things, but they forget that. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> we do. Yeah. We're like a very agreeable... Co- well, 
agreeing, not agreeable, but we're a very agreeing country, especially compared to many, I mean, everywhere, <laughs> especially yeah. compared to almost, I was going to say the West, but also like a lot of other places. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, um, um, and, 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 you know, just, just, just for me, um, as somebody who, you know, I have a great, great, great ad- admiration uh, for for America. I, I really, really do in so so many ways. But I just look at those those two conventions. And if you wanted to sell America abroad, you, I think we all know which convention you would actually sell to the world. The America that Americans tell themselves that they are mm. wasn't the first convention it wasn't the america where anyone can you know whether it's true or not but the but the america but the national myth that you tell yourselves that anybody can can strive to high office anybody can build a business you can look after your family you are a shining light on the top of the hill etc etc all those american stories myths ethoses whatever you want to call them that you tell yourselves that wasn't the first out of the two conventions at all. You know, if you're if you're selling brand America, you want to trot out what the Democrats did. So Royfield, I have my opinions on this as well. But you actually asked me this question earlier, and uh, I want to. I've been thinking about it a lot, and I want to bounce it back to you because you've probably been thinking about it too. So, is this the winter of the American democracy, or are America's best days still ahead? I think that's two different things. And again, I guess winter always turns to spring, doesn't it? <laughs> well, American democracy isn't America. And one of the ways of which this country is incredibly unique throughout the world is the fact that you've wrapped the two things up together. And as I say to people all the time, I am British and it's got nothing to do with how we, how we govern ourselves. Italians are just Italians. Chinese people are just Chinese. They just have to be communist at the moment, but it doesn't matter. Whereas to be an American right here and now is to believe in a certain way of governing. So you venerate the Constitution. No German can recite bits of the German Constitution because you're just German. Um, In terms of American democracy... Uh, I think Thomas Jefferson was right. Every 20 years, it needs to be renewed. And absolutely, we've come to a point whereby um, certain elements, and I would say fundamental elements, but they're still small in the great scheme of things, need to be uh, revisited. The way that you draw your congressional districts, that needs to be looked at. It needs to be non-partisan. It needs to be completely and utterly independent because... This is adding to the uh, separation that Americans feel because uh, red states are drawing the congressional boundaries just around red districts and ditto blue states and whatever, so that actually less of your congressional seats are actually in play. So hardly any congressmen are actually really ever going to lose their seats. If you have let's say a third or a half of seats were potentially actually in play, my God, would you have much more of a political consensus. You would have to notice and understand what the other side is saying. That, that, so that's American democracy. So it needs to be renewed. Is, is, it, is it winter of American democracy? I, d- I wouldn't quite go that far. I don't think the, the, the whole constitution is about to collapse, but it definitely does need to be renewed refreshed spring cleaned to use the winter analogy so maybe this needs a little bit of spring cleaning are the best days of america behind it um as a student of history it'd be hard to say that you could say that the 21st century could could be for america what the 20th century was but Mm. um i do believe that um america's still got a lot of life in it yet and as a person of colour, it cannot be overestimated, un- underestimated, sorry, um, how important a symbol you sent out to the world eight years ago that somebody who is from a visible minority could actually mm. get the top office. 
Um, that hasn't happened in Britain, Germany, France, uh, oh. any comparable country. So you guys, you guys have actually showed the rest of the world that in one aspect, though, you know, the American dream is alive and kicking and you should be incredibly proud of that. So are America's best days um, ahead of it? Maybe. Uh, but I've still got a lot of faith in America. That's awesome. I tend to, I like, I read a lot of, uh, I read a lot of theory, political theory. Mm-hmm. And so I, I try to think about it that way, which is why I'm just so much less, in, you know, inspired. But the two sources I have on that question disagree vehemently. Um, one of them is Machiavelli, mm-hmm. and uh, we talk a lot about him in, in episode 13, but one of the things he talks about is in The Prince, um, and he, he alludes to it in Discourses on Livy as well, is that ultimately governments will go through cycles, um, and he thinks it's actually due to sort of the virtue of the populace. So what happens is like you have a king, and the king like unites the country or they drive off an invader or something like that. And then like you have a country um, and they form and they have this, you know, the king and the, you know, the people supporting uh, the government there have this like strong sense of duty and virtue uh, towards the and, and like loyalty towards the system. Um, and they support it. And it can be, you know, you can have some terrible kings, but it, but it kind of works for a while. And then what happens is uh, the king's like son's son's son 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 um kind of forgets why they're king uh and what the purpose was and what their duty is because they're you know surrounded by by sycophants and they get you know they live the good life and um and what happens is they become self-serving and uh and then the powerful people the aristocrats throw them out and the aristocrats are like yeah we finally liberate ourselves and they have a strong sense of duty and that and virtue and then over time, they grow, go, grow corrupt. Uh, and then the people overthrow them and they say, yeah, you know, we're finally liberated and we can make our own decisions. And the people start out virtuous and then they grow kind of uh, self-serving and they kind of forget why. They forget that democracy is not just a fight for your own, like, you know, for to get what you can out of it. Um, but that it was, you know, sort of originally designed to be a group of people making good group decisions for everyone. Um and then it breaks down. And Machiavelli actually predicts that what happens is people kind of get so fed up with democracy that they're fine with handing something over to a, to a white knight sort of figure that can come in and save them, um, you know, sort of from the other party, but to some extent from themselves. And I think there's a I think I'm seeing a little bit more of that sense of uh, idolatry of a presidential candidate Um you know, in particular that, like you said earlier, like we have this checks and balances system and they're not supposed to be all powerful and they're not even that supposed to be that big a deal compared to Congress and Senate mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, but that idolatry and that like kind of willingness to say like, yeah, I want you to totally shake up and tear down the system um, and replace it under your under like what you believe. So maybe a sign that we're heading that way. So that could be a sign that we're we're due for a a major refresh and we don't have a great way of doing refreshes. Uh, you know, we've got the, um, the amendment system, but we don't use it much and it requires a lot of consensus, which is kind of toxic to, uh, politically to agree with the other party right now. So we may have to go. I think that if Machiavelli's right, we have some pain to go through before we finally go, Oh, what have we done to ourselves? We have to fix it. Um, so things may get worse before they get better. And that may be where the winter analogy comes in. Cause we may be going through a winter before spring comes. The other way to look at it is George Freeman, uh, who's contemporary, um, big structuralist guy, big on geopolitics, uh, and like things being driven by kind of fundamental, um, yeah, fundamental structural stuff. And he thinks that America, in the 21st century is actually going to be kind of even more prosperous than in the 20th, uh, due to a lot of stuff. Uh, he thinks that like China and Russia are going to kind of break down at some point due in part to demographics and that, uh, the EU is 
he's like never been big on the EU and he thinks it's going to stagnate the EU. And because um, he's like, well, here are the structuralist reasons going on behind that. You know, read his stuff if you want to understand more. But he thinks that the United States is actually going to reemerge as fairly powerful. Um, and he thinks that's going to give the United States sort of a sense of purpose again. Uh, and that that sense of purpose and actually the the unity of, oh, hey, we're actually great. That, that, you know, some of the stuff you talked about, that sense of like, we're great, we're a city upon the hill, and we've got to like take, you know, and we got to take care of the world. Um, you know, some of the historical stuff that happened in the late 20th century, or the latter half of the 20th century, you know, some of it was kind of dodgy, like Vietnam and Granada, um, but that it also made Americans feel together. Um, and that that may be, if that happens structurally, and the United States becomes preponderant again, he thinks that you might the United States may end up just kind of changing its culture back to being a, hey, we're all Americans, we all agree, and we're great, uh, and yeah, we disagree on some stuff, and we'll yell, but uh, we're going to get along. So it could go, I mean, it could probably go eighteen other ways, but which do I think is more likely? I have no idea. Um, well, you know, there's just just very very quickly. I think um, in terms of the Machiavelli. Um, kind of approach that there is a natural kind of wax and wane to the fortunes of countries it's hard not to be a student of uh, western history and not believe that that is the case you know sometimes countries are relatively strong then sometimes they're the weaker and etc etc and and that can be external and also internal and you could argue you could make a very strong argument for saying that this is a point whereby America has forgotten those uh, post-Second World War things which bound it together, and that's the reason why political discourse is so so rancorous. You know, so you, you could make a very strong argument for that and just say, well, there will come a, an event, and and some you could have made a very strong argument for saying that the event was 9-11, um, you know, 15, 16 odd years ago or so to say that we come an event which actually helps to unite the country. 9-11 didn't because of the way it was actually dealt with after the event, but yes, so the, there is there is that argument. Um, but kind of mo- moving on, and I think this is key to whether America uh, will be uh, economically as prosperous in the 21st century as it was in the 20th, is if America can view the world as something which it doesn't need to take uh, specific uh, guardianship of militarily. And it can do that from a a position of relative security. So it doesn't spend what it spends on its military and it spends it on its infrastructure. Then I I actually do believe the the 21st century could be I'm not going to say the American century, but definitely one where America is as prosperous as it can be, uh, first in a, a set of nations of equals. Yes, I do believe that the, tw- the 21st century could well be incredibly fruitful for the United States. Cool. I still, I wish Andrew was still with us because he's actually doing a lot of work on uh, America as a America in the post unipolar age and mm-hmm. what our strategy needs to be for that. But, um, something that we'll save for our next episode. Cause sorry, listeners, Xander had to run, uh, because we've just been having such a ball talking. We uh-huh. went over our scheduled time. Um, Royfield, I think that's a great, it's a great uh, kind of question mark to leave people noodling on something that we at reconsider love to do is send people away with questions as much as answers. Um, so I've had an absolute ball talking with you. Thank you so much for having us on your show. Listen, no, no, thank you for having me on your show. For our listeners, uh, Royfield is, uh, sort of a savant when it comes to podcasting. He's got a ton of stuff. If you care about global politics, U S politics, U S history, uh, and, and even like the history of music, one of his really interesting shows is how Jamaica conquered the world. Um, Sorry, not just music, but culture uh, about how Jamaica has punched way above its weight uh, in terms of cultural influence across the world. Royfield's a super smart guy, as you can tell. Um, So I encourage you to go check out his stuff 
And besides at the Agora Podcast Network, Royfield, where can people find you? Um, yeah, so it's uh, crumbs. You, you, you might, you're making me blush. But if you go to Royfield.com, <laughs> you can find um, a lot of my podcasts. But the things which I'm kind of really fervent on and working on at the moment are Mid-Atlantic, which you mentioned, uh, and um, all my stuff at Agora. And actually, a weird and wonderful thing called Dumpty Dum, which is very close to my heart, which is where I talk about my love of this British soap opera, radio soap opera called The Archers. <laughs> so if you just want to completely forget the world of politics and history and culture, go listen to Dumpty Dum. Uh, you won't understand a word of it, but it's good fun. One of the lovely things is about Dumpty Dum is that many people actually listen to it that don't actually even listen to The Archers because they quite like the kind of the comedy and the humour that myself and my co-host Lucy kind of throw at it. And it's just like two friends talking in the pub in the bar it's that type of thing so we'll we'll go off and and we will ramble as i have done on your on your show here (laughs) about politics about history about why dinner is called dinner we'll just talk about anything and just kind of weave it back into talking about uh, the archers which we love so um yeah so um royfield.com if you just want to find out uh, some of the things that i do and um and yeah and uh, on social media i'm at royfield specifically on twitter and on facebook just just royfield spelled r-o-i-f-i-e-l-d so r-o-i for india f-i-e-l-d cool well royfield thank you so much for joining us in lieu of xander i'm going to sign off for both of us so remember as always don't let the pundits do the thinking for you stop and reconsider this is eric signing off catch you guys next time Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.